Radical Personal Finance, Episode 17. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Sheets, for today, Thursday, July 10, 2014. Today's show is going to be fun. Today, we're going to talk again about taxes, only unlike last week or earlier this week or whenever it was that we were talking about avoiding taxes. Today, we're going to talk about just simply not paying them. Should be fun. Yes, you heard it right. Today, we're going to talk not about tax avoidance. We are going to talk about tax evasion. We're going to cross over the line. And today's show is going to be an interview with a man named David Gross, who runs a site and has written a book. He runs a site called The Picket Line. And this is about the war tax protest movement. I first ran across this a year or two ago, and I just was fascinated by some of the things that he was writing and some of the information that he had to share. And, you know, it's going to be kind of a properly radical subject. Uh, It's going to be a properly, uh, I guess, edgy subject. Uh, It's very comfortable a lot of times for us to talk about uh, choosing not to pay the taxes through legal means. Uh, But then you get to the point of saying, when do you say enough is enough? And I'm going to choose not to pay them because of moral reasons. And that's what this episode is going to be about. Before we get started, just to be clear, uh, I find this subject really interesting. But since I'm clearly on the record here, uh, I'm not a war tax protester. Although I'm sympathetic to his position, I, that's not me. And at this point in time, choose to pay every dollar that I owe. Not a penny more, but choose to pay every dollar that I owe. What you do with the information is up to you. I do think David makes some good points, and I think you'll enjoy some of the information. And I think that even if you are sympathetic to paying high taxes, then I think there's still some things that are worth listening to and some tactics and tools that could be used to be applied to other financial situations. This is really, in essence, kind of what I want the show to be about is what could you learn from those radical elements of society? What can you learn from somebody who's who's taking a very non-mainstream approach to their personal finance? I believe there's a lot that we can learn. So stick with us for the interview. Uh, I thank you for listening. Tomorrow's show is going to be a Q&A. I've put some information out on Twitter, so tomorrow's show is going to be a Q&A. If you are interested in asking me a question, shoot me a tweet. Our Twitter address is at RadicalPF, or send me an email, Joshua, at Radical Personal Finance. Thank you for those of you. Uh, thanks so much to those of you who are listening and sharing the show. I appreciate every single one of you. And now, let's go to the interview. <laughs> Mr. David Gross, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty interested in our conversation today, and I'll set a little bit of a background for the audience that uh, we've never spoken prior to about three minutes ago uh, when I just started the recorder. We chatted for a moment before I fired up the recorder. But I first found your website, which is uh, sniggle.net. I first, and it, it's, I guess you call it the picket line website. I first found your website, I think about a year or two ago. And I was, uh, I was researching, I was researching some things on taxes and I stumbled across your site and it opened up a world to me that I never, <laughs> frankly, I never knew existed. The, I, I knew it existed kind of intellectually, anecdotally, but I never knew it existed. The, the world of tax resistance, I never knew that it existed. Uh, you know, in reality, with people coming together and working together and actively avoiding and evading and resisting taxes based upon their moral quandary. So what I thought maybe we could start with is, would you be willing to take a few minutes and kind of just share your story and uh, share some of the things that have happened in your life over the years that have led uh, that have led you through your own moral decisions to take some of the steps that you've taken? Share that with us. Uh, sure. In 2003, when the Iraq War or the, the American uh, invasion of Iraq was about to start, I was feeling uh, really torn up about it in that I was convinced that what we were about to do as a, as a nation was really reprehensible. And yet I felt like I was not, um, not really opposed to it in a meaningful way. I was opposed to it in a way a lot of people were, uh, rhetorically, 
I was out on the street with signs and writing letters to the editor and angry blog posts and emails and the like. So I felt like, you know, as a, a, as a sort of mood, I was very much opposed to it. But when I looked at the way I was living my life, I was going to work every day and a certain amount of my income was being taken away and given to the government to, to allow this war to happen. I felt like if somebody were to look at me objectively, they would say that really I'm a war supporter because of the financial support, the practical support that I was giving uh, to the U.S. military. And I decided I couldn't live with that anymore. And it was uh, reading Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience that finally put me over the line and said, I really have to, I have to put my money where my mouth is and make a practical effort to, to live the way that my, my values demand. And so what this meant for me was tax resistance. I had to stop paying for the war that I hated. I didn't know much about tax resistance at the time. I was familiar in a vague sort of way that there might be a movement of people out there who were doing this sort of thing, but I hadn't been in contact with them. I was just sort of responding to a moral imperative. So I went into my employer and asked if there was a way to perhaps uh, lower my income or lower my hours in such a way that I would get below the tax line. I didn't know where this tax line was. I assumed it was probably somewhere around the poverty line. So I was imagining that I was going to be engaging in a really radical change in my lifestyle, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of trouble. Uh, my employer, as it turns out, was not willing to do that. They thought it would look really suspicious to their accountants or to their tax attorney or what have you. So uh, instead, I ended up quitting my job and turning into a contractor and doing consulting work for the same company I'd been working for as an employee before. Uh, that enabled me to regulate my income. The next task was to figure out where this darn tax line was. Uh, and it turns out there isn't one. There is a tax line for everybody depending on their own circumstances. So depending on what you do with your money, depending on how old you are, depending on whether you have kids or not, depending on whether you, have a, uh, you own a home or not, there are all these different variables that go into figuring out where your tax line was. So I had to learn a lot about the tax law and try to, to figure out with spreadsheets and the like what my personal tax line was. And I was very happy to find out that it wasn't going to be the poverty line, that I was going to be able to live a fairly comfortable life. I was going to have to be a little bit more frugal than I had been, but it wasn't going to, to plunge me into some sort of desperate straits. At the same time, I was also finding out that there was a community of people who were doing war tax resistance. And so I could draw on a lot of the uh, experience and traditions of this group. And in fact, war tax resistance in the United States or in America actually goes predates the United States. There were uh, Quakers doing war tax resistance to Queen Anne's War, you know, back in the, the 16th century. So uh, there was a long tradition and lineage of war tax resistance that I was walking into, and I could take advantage of that collected experience. Did this come from uh, like a, a religious background or just kind of a strong political re you know, repulsion of the idea behind the Iraq War? Or was it some kind of overarching uh, re religious background, or what was your background with, as far as what prompted it? Uh, for me, it was not a religious thing. It was um, I. Uh, <laughs> I just don't like the idea of causing suffering and and killing and the like. And I saw the Iraq War as being something that was going to be a whole lot of that, and uh, a, not very much uh, positive results from it. People were claiming that there were going to be all sorts of wonderful things that were going to come out of it. And those wonderful things seemed very speculative to me. And the suffering that we were going to cause seemed very concrete and obvious. And as history has turned out, I think that's turned out to be a good hunch. The, the speculative good, uh, good results of the Iraq War have not really come to pass. And the suffering certainly has. You know, I definitely, uh, I definitely am sympathetic towards that. It, it's, I wish I could say that I had joined you at that time. I'm, I'm 29 years old, so when the Iraq War was declared, let's see, 2003, I was just graduating from high school. And at that point in time, I think I was much more caught up with the, you know, the, the political – at the time, I didn't see through the political rhetoric. And I was very much – I had just become eligible to vote, and, when I voted, and I voted for George Bush, and I was very excited about the, the mission on Iraq, as it were. But I tell you, over the last 11 years, there's been some dramatic changes, and, and uh, I didn't quite have the prescience that, that you evidently had. But now, looking back at it, uh, I can't – I can't even imagine how I didn't see through it. And, and when you look at just the lives that are lost and, you know, somehow that's where I, I, these days I certainly prefer to reject a lot of the political affiliations 
because it seems like if it's an R or a D, you know, and that was my problem at that time. It, you know, for me, I'm thinking, oh, okay, it's a Republican thing, so the Republicans are good, and I'm not a Democrat, and so then that then you you know you jump on board the bandwagon. But as the time goes forward, and and you know it flips around, and then you have a Democrat in the in the White House. Well, then you look at something like, well, we should we go to war in Syria? And you say, no, of course not. And since then, I've learned a lot. I've changed a lot, and I am. I'm right there with you. I don't see any good, any good at all that's come out of it, and I, I get pretty embarrassed at the fact that that I didn't see it earlier. I mean, hopefully, I get a little bit of a uh, not a pass, but a little bit of understanding due to my age, and hopefully, I won't repeat the same mistakes. But I respect you for that. <laughs> I think partisanship also is uh, puts a lot of blinders on people. I certainly notice that in folks uh, that they don't see the world quite as clearly if they have a strong identification either with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. They tend to see things through a filter. And uh, it, leaving that behind is a great way of, of kind of opening your eyes, seeing the world in a better way. It really is because, I mean, these days I, I feel like I'm kind of out on – I mean, I don't I – don't, I don't empathize well with either of the parties. Uh, I <laughs> have some things more, in, uh, you know. I have some things more in common with communists, and I have some things more in common with anarchists, and I have some things in common with people across the across the way. And it, to me, I found that really freeing to give up uh, give up all of the the politics of like the political ideology of one side, because then it allows you to kind of look at each issue, and you still ha- can have a philosophy that that guides you on it, um, that guides you, but without just uh, adhering to, well, this is what the party says, so this is right. Yeah, you certainly learn a lot more about the issues if you approach them with an attitude of, I have to decide for myself, rather than what does my party think is the right thing on here, and I'll just adhere to that. Yeah, absolutely. So then, so you started off, and uh, we'll get off of the politics and back to the taxes, which I guess it's, it's <laughs> inextricably tied together, but uh, I'm not scared to talk about politics. I've always rejected, you know, that old saying, you know, two things you're not supposed to talk about money and politics and i say what what matters more in life every day except money and politics we should be able to talk about those things it causes not talking causes problems so you started by right. trying you started by trying to get your income below the line and you started researching the the behemoth that is the us tax code and and where did things go from there well, I learned uh, that I could uh, get under the income tax line anyway fairly easily and that a lot of people do. Uh, it's become kind of notorious now, but at the time it was just sort of an emerging uh, fact that a lot of Americans are living under the tax line right now. I think currently it's around 40% of households do not pay any income tax. Mm-hmm. So I realized I wasn't going to have to go live in a cave. I wasn't going to have to you know, eat grubs and berries. I was just going to have to join this large group of Americans who are already not paying income tax. So I just needed to figure out how. So in my case, uh, I don't have any children. Um, I don't own a home. So things like you know, mortgage uh, interest deductions are, are out for me, child tax credit. Uh, earned income tax credit are kind of uh, lost to me, but I could do things like put money into a health savings account and use that as a tax deduction, put money into an IRA and use that as a tax deduction, spend money on tuition. And some of these things have tax credits associated with them too. And so I set up a, a, a spreadsheet and started running some numbers to try to figure out what I could do with my money in such a way that I could earn enough money to, to live comfortably and yet not have to pay any of it in income tax. And by jiggling the numbers around and figuring out what that value was, I could then try to hit that target. And some, some years I'm more successful than others, uh, depending on which contracts I can bring in. Uh, it, there have been years that have been really thin when the economic crisis hit. I had a hard time finding any clients. And so that year I didn't, didn't come near my number. But I had enough savings that I could glide through that year. Um, so by hitting this number pretty consistently from year after year, since 2003, I haven't had to pay any federal income tax at all, uh, legally and by the book. Now, there's another tax that, uh, that self-employed people are hit with, and that's uh, the Self-Employed Contributions Act. That's the self-employment um, version of FICA, or the Medicare Social Security tax. And because that applies to pretty much the very first dollar you earn, there's no line you can get under for that. So the government still is hitting me with the self-employment tax. And so I resist that by simply not writing the check. So I have a sort of hybrid way of doing tax resistance. I get below the line so I don't owe any income tax. And I don't write the check as a way of not paying the self-employment tax. 
So the obvious question then comes, aren't you a little bit concerned about the fact that you're on a publicly released podcast and, and <laughs> it's going to go online and you're simply saying, I'm choosing not to pay the tax? Aren't you a little bit concerned about the consequences? Well, I think the consequences are more or less the same whether I'm out here you know, making a lot of noise on a podcast or not. I file my returns every year, so the IRS knows how much they'd like to get from me, and they know that I don't write them the check, and they write me letters uh, with increasing amounts of bold-faced type and exclamation marks on them saying, could you please pay up now? Uh, so I'm not, I'm not trying to hide from them. And that's one of the things I kind of like about this form of activism is that it is honest and it's out in the open. I'm not you know, I, I'm not being secretive about it. I don't feel like I'm living a double life. I'm simply telling them, no, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to pay for your wars. I don't want to pay for the actions of the government. I've got better things I can do with my money. Uh, if you feel like you need to come after me, come after me, but I'm not going to volunteer. I'm not going to participate in what you're doing. So that would be kind of where I'm interested in I'm interested in you just talking about some of that difference a little bit because I think where I came from in my background and, and probably a lot of listeners would also come from is, you know, I, I would trumpet loudly from the rooftops as a, as a financial planner, you know, that there's a major difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion with tax avoidance just being simply doing, you know, lowering your income below the line and tax evasion illegally choosing not to pay those uh, those Social Security and Medicare taxes, choosing not to pay the self-employment taxes. And so the tax of tax avoidance is entirely legal. I did an entire show on that, uh, I believe it was earlier this week, and talked about um, all of the details of it. I, I included a statistic, which by the way, you, uh, I, I would, I'm sure you haven't listen to it. But if you're interested, there's some statistics. Uh, I'm really fascinated by tax planning. And there's a statistic that I read on the show from a book called How to Pay Zero Taxes. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's a kind of a CPA book type of thing. I don't think so. Yeah. So, so if you go in the financial planning community, uh, I'm I'm fascinated. There's there's a lot of good books, and one of the things that I want to do with the show is disseminate a lot of really good information on the topic. But there's a book called How to Pay Zero Taxes, and in the preface to the book, the author uh, relates the history of people who uh, the relates the, relates the history of various incomes and the number of people that owed no federal income taxes. And off the top of my head, uh, the in 2009 were the last numbers that he cited. And in 2009, there were almost, either almost or over, just about 20,000 people in the United States of America who made over $200,000 of, of income and paid zero federal income taxes. And there were, I believe it was almost or, or just about 2,000 people who, in the, in the United States of America, who made over a million dollars and paid zero federal income taxes. And there, you know, there are various advanced, you know, advanced techniques that can be put together. And the, the author was a, is a tax attorney. He went on to write a 500-page book on it, and it's really, really interesting. But that, that's all, you know, what turns. <laughs> that's a, if you want to make a financial planner's heart grow warm and fuzzy, just start talking about, you know, figuring out how to how to make a million dollars of income and, and avoid 100% of the federal income taxes. I still can't figure out how to do it completely well, but I really enjoy the conversation. But you cross over then into the line of evasion. And so of, of choosing to make a moral stand. And, you know, to most Americans, I would imagine, at least it would be to me, that's kind of that, how on earth can you not support your government? How on earth can you not be patriotic? But what I found interesting was, was if you get out of that and you kind of get out of the modern era, I looked through the book that you recently wrote, which was 99 Tactics of Successful Tax Resistance Campaigns, and I started seeing history all over the place that I'd never known about. And like you said, this is not a new thing, that this has been happening for hundreds of years. Yeah, people have used tax resistance for a number of reasons. They've used it to enforce civil rights. For instance, the women's suffrage movement in Great Britain used tax resistance to great effect to try to win the vote for women. Uh, Gandhi in South Africa trying to get civil rights for Indian immigrants in South Africa was using tax resistance there. And his first, um, first examples of Satyagraha that he used in South Africa were as part of the tax resistance campaign. It's been used in campaigns for uh, independence. The American Revolution started as a lot of tax resistance campaign. Uh, the uh, campaigns of Gandhi in India for, to gain independence for India were in large part tax resistance. Um, there have been tax resistance campaigns in modern Palestine to try to, to win independence for Palestine. 
in Catalonia right now, trying to win independence from Spain. They're using tax resistance in that struggle. Uh, tax resistance can be used simply uh, to avoid the theft of taxation. So, for instance, there's a group in Italy called Adio Piso, which is trying to get people to resist paying taxes to the mafia. And they're doing this by uh, getting businesses to sign up and say, we will refuse to pay taxes and come out and be very open about it, but signs in their window as a way of saying, you know, I'm not afraid of the mafia. I'm not paying taxes to the mafia. And by doing this, they're also getting citizens to support them, to come and uh, to, to say that they will only shop at stores that display this sign. So this is tax resistance being used against uh, a, a group that you wouldn't even necessarily think of being taxing, you know, a mafia that is, that is uh, sort of a quasi-state, not really a government. Uh, tax resistance can be used to combat corruption. In Chicago during the Depression, a lot of the uh, property in Chicago was not on the tax rolls because the uh, people who owned it had bought off politicians and sort of gotten their property exempted. And so the people who were paying taxes rose up in revolt and said, we're not going to pay anymore because we think the tax rolls are rotten. And they won. They went to court. They uh, were able to prove that this was the case. And the tax rolls were invalidated for two years. And everybody who was a resistor, their resistance had suddenly become legalized. So there's a lot of reasons why people have used tax resistance in a variety of struggles. War tax resistors, which is sort of a more of a chronic thing and has been going on throughout American history, uh, is, a, is another variety. It's people who just say, you know, I might want to support government if it were involved in doing things for the good of society, but it's gone over the line. It's starting to do things that are involving me in, in, in reprehensible activity. I feel that I have blood on my hands when I give money to the government, yeah. so I can't do it anymore. And I guess that's where, you know, the question is, where is the line? And obviously that's a question that each person has to answer individually. But it's so easy to look at a place like Italy. And if you hear about, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with Italian politics, but if you say, well, these taxes are supporting the mafia or, you know, the, the leaders, what was it, uh, Berlusconi, you know, here's this guy that seems from many stories like a total crook, then it's so easy to say good for them for good for them for, uh, for resisting <laughs> this total crook and choosing not to support it. But if you look at the United States and if you grow up in the United States of America and you think, well, it's, it's apple pie and it's freedom and it's patriotism and all these things, then the question becomes, where do you draw that line? And at what point in time do you say, I'm willing to, to make a stand? Uh, I'm willing to make a stand for, for my beliefs, even to the point where it costs me. Yeah, yeah, it's tough, and everybody does have to draw that line in their own way. But uh, I, I think what history shows is that a lot of people have and have done it successfully, and it's a rewarding thing to do, and it's an empower th empowering thing to do. Uh, people think of taxes as being sort of an inevitability, something that they don't have any choice over, that they, they don't have to make a decision. They don't have any uh, – it doesn't have any sort of personal moral import. And when you decide that, well, yes, it does, I do have to make a decision, it isn't just sort of a default thing, then it increases the, um, the amount of um, presence that you have in the world, mm -hmm. the, the amount of your life that you're actually living as opposed to having been having be lived for you increases. And I think that, that uh, increases your life. It just makes you, uh, it makes you a bigger part of the world. In your book, you outline the four different categories of protesters, of, of resistors in, in the current American war tax resistance movement, and then also in, I guess, I don't know if this is just American war tax resistance or, or in general. Would you walk through and explain those four categories? Because that helped me a lot to recognize that, that there are people and, and there are different ways of protesting, and there are people that are are using all of these ways. Would you walk through those four categories and explain what they mean and maybe give some examples like you do in the book? Sure, yeah. Uh, one example is a conscientious objector. So the, the classic example of this would be somebody who, for instance, uh, is a Quaker pacifist and will not pay for war because they don't think that they, would, they, they wouldn't go to war, they wouldn't uh, shoot a weapon in war, and they don't think that, therefore, it is right to pay somebody else to do so. And they feel that taxes would, would, would be making them do that. So as a conscientious objector, they refuse to pay taxes. Another example would be a protester. And uh, the, the idea behind this is that money talks and that the politicians will listen to you if you withhold funds from them a lot more than if you just complain to them. 
So, for instance, um, the women's suffrage movement was using this a lot. They would refuse to pay taxes and they would do it in a very confrontational way. And then when the government would come and seize their property or you know, auction off their property to pay for the taxes, they would use that as another opportunity to protest. So they would gather people together. They would turn it into a big rally. And so they were using tax resistance as a way of, of sort of amplifying their, their protest. Another variety of tax resistance is nonviolent resistance. So this would be a case, for instance, like Gandhi's campaigns in India, where he was actually trying to withhold enough money from the British Empire that it no longer became profitable for them to occupy India. The idea being that once they'd gotten to the point where it was costing the British Empire to stick around, that they would be more likely to leave. Uh, another example would be somebody who's doing tax resistance as part of a legal challenge. So the example I gave earlier about the property tax resistors in Chicago were resisting as a way of kind of prompting the government to take them to court, whereupon they could go to court and prove that the tax rolls were completely ruinous and, uh, and win in court that way. Now, when I was giving, this, giving a talk on this to some more tax resistors in the United States, uh, one of them came up to me afterwards and said that uh, he didn't really fit into any of these categories, that for him, the reason why he was resisting is that he wanted to spend all of his resources, his time, his money, everything, uh, philanthropically. He wanted to make society a better place with his money and resources, and he thought that giving money to the government was a bad way of doing that. And so the money that the government wanted to get from him, he was instead giving to charities that he thought were being uh, better stewards of his money. And I've also heard people who are doing tax resistance more in my way say that by reducing their income below the tax line, that gave them a lot more time. And that was time that they could then put into philanthropy and into uh, charitable activities. And so that became a primary motivation for why they were doing tax resistance the way they were. What would you say has been probably the most successful, uh, because you've cited a lot of examples, and the one that I'm, I was particularly fascinated with was, in the book, was the British women's suffrage movement, which you've mentioned, I think, twice now. And the reason is because to, it's, it seems to me like the, the tax resistance had a major part in, in changing the law. And the, I was never around during the suffrage protests and the suffrage movements here in the U.S., but that's one of those things where I think in the modern society we would say, well, duh. But the, the, you know, why would anybody even argue about uh, women and, and women having the right to vote? But yet the tax resistance was, was part of that, and it seems like it was effective. Would you cite that as one of the more effective examples, or what are some of the, of the most effective examples uh, where tax resistance has really made a difference? I think that was a good example of one where tax resistance worked well as a protest, in part because um, – it, it really had a way of, of making the contrast in the way that the government treated women very clear and out in the open. So when a woman would come and say, look, it says here that people can vote if they own property. I'm a person. The government would come back to them and say, well, you're not really a person. You're a woman. And then the woman would go back and say, well, it says here that people have to pay taxes. If I'm not a person, do I not have to pay taxes? And they would say, well, in this case, actually, people includes women. And so this sort of hypocrisy on the part of the government where women were people when it was convenient to tax them, but not when it was convenient to ask uh, the consent of the governed, was something that was excellent propaganda. Everybody could see that that didn't make any sense. And so tax resistance was a wonderful way of pointing that out. Um, the tax resistance that went on, well, here's, here's an example that's going on right now, is that in Brittany, this is in uh, western France, the government put up eco-tax portholes. These are uh, sort of gantries that cover the highway that were going to be uh, scanning the license plates of trucks as they went by and taxing the trucks based on how many gantries they went through. Uh, they were billing this as an eco-tax, something that was going to reduce the amount of trucks on the road and reduce the amount of pollution in the air and so on and so forth. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons to, to think that the government wasn't really, didn't really have ecology in mind when it invented this tax, that really it was just a revenue raiser. Really? Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> the effect that it had on Brittany, though, was that it made the price of agricultural goods that they were exporting go up because this tax was being added to them. And it made it very difficult for them to find markets for their goods in other parts of the Eurozone. And so this caused a great deal of uh, problems in Brittany. And they decided to solve these problems by burning these portals down one after the other. as a group called the Bonnets Rouges, or Red Caps. 
And they've been doing this extremely successfully throughout Brittany to the point where the government pretty much had to give up on the eco-tax. They will burn these things to the ground and then the ones that are damaged, the government has to haul away. I think there have been dozens of these things all throughout Brittany that have been burned down. Uh, and reading about this as it's, it's currently ongoing, I'm reminded of what was going on in Wales in the mid-19th century. There was a group there called uh, the Rebeccaites who were a fascinating group. And it was a similar thing where the government had installed or allowed uh, tax farmers basically to install toll roads, toll gates on all the roads throughout Wales to the point where people would have to go through several of these gates just to get to market and back. And infuriated by this, they formed these bands of people, uh, men who would go off into the countryside in the middle of the night dressed in women's clothes following a woman that they they called Rebecca, who was just one of the crowd, who would be wearing a bonnet and some feathers in her hair and would be on a horse and leading the crowd to the toll gates. And they would tear them apart, uh, axe them to bits and throw them into the river. And wow. they destroyed hundreds of toll gates all across Wales in the, around 1843. Uh, extraordinarily successful campaign. Uh, the government was completely flummoxed, didn't know what to do, had a great deal of popular support. And of course, it's very picturesque. You have these weird sort of transvestite toll booth destroyers running around Wales in the middle of the night on horseback. It's a, a wonderful and strange event. But it's being repeated now in a strange way in Brittany, where people are dressing up in their red hats and running off into the countryside in the middle of the night and burning down these toll booths. Wow, isn't it, isn't it, excuse me, isn't it interesting that isn't there a, a phrase from history that the the victors get to write the write the history story, and True how <laughs> that's what I found so interesting about your book, and I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, I, I've kind of skimmed through it and read some parts that really were you know interesting to me, but but it's it's the things that the United States did in se- in the late seventeen hundreds. We celebrate as being incredible, uh, incredible, you know, acts of patriotism. And yet, were we to, you know, were were we to have some reason to do the same thing today, we would find that we would find that that would be what's the what's the word that's the opposite of patriotism? Um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, it's traitorous. Seditious. Yeah, seditious yeah. and traitorous. I, I blanked on the on the vocabulary for a moment. So these things that we celebrate now uh, of the story you just told of how great it was as far as as releasing as as far as releasing the 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 people from tyranny. We celebrate that now, but yet to the government that was in charge at that time, that was tre- that was treason, and yeah. uh, it, it makes you really just think. And and this is where. I wish we I wish we thought about it as 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 kids as adults and kind of had more of these conversations is how does the government where does the government get its moral authority from and 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 then where do we why do we choose to submit versus not and that's why I admire people again like you who have thought through it and I'm I'm certainly not ready to to run the risk of jail time and run the risk of my assets being uh being frozen I'm not ready to do that but I certainly admire people who are and and it kind of makes you think sometimes you know one thing i should probably mention is that uh, for the sort of tax resistance that i'm involved in and that most people in the war tax resistance movement are involved in the the risk of jail time is really very very low and people have a have this impression that you know the irs is all powerful and they'll come down on you like a ton of bricks if you don't pay up what you want and in fact that's that's really not true uh, there are people who have gone to jail. I, I looked it up, and since uh, since 1990, so over the last 25 years or so, I think there have been eight people, uh, eight war tax resistors in the United States. You know, and this is out of thousands who have done any sort of jail time. And for those, uh, many of them are not doing jail time for their tax resistance itself, but for carrying their resistance on into the courtroom. So, for instance, the IRS uh, asks them to produce financial documents. They refuse. The IRS takes them to court. A judge orders them to to produce financial documents. They refuse again, and they end up going to jail for contempt of court. Hmm. So these are people who are really pushing things. You know, they're really... Resistance is, uh, you know, very much a part of what they want to be doing, and they want to carry it uh, to that ultimate point. For most people who are war tax resistors, that's not really going to be an issue. They resist. They resist. The government sends them letters. 
Uh, you know, that's where I'm at. I've been resisting for over a decade, and that's pretty much all the IRS has done is send me letters, and they've tried to seize money from bank accounts a couple of times. I was just going to say, uh, isn't it at least inconvenient? Don't they then try to try to take your uh, take money from your bank accounts? I mean, if you were employed, wouldn't they try to garnish your wages? Uh, is that why you're self-employed? I mean, it would at least make life very inconvenient, right? They, I think they've got more power than they tend to use, and this is in part because uh, currently they're underfunded and they're under a lot of pressure from Congress and the like. And so they're, they're, they're kind of scrambling to do their job. And folks like me who are you know, just not paying, not paying what they owe, uh, we're not really enough of a priority for them to really send out the hounds for. Um, in my case, they've found bank accounts on a couple of occasions and cleared them out. Um, so out of maybe $36,000 that I've refused to pay over the years, I think they've managed to, to pull in about six. Um, they have, they've never threatened me with any sort of a criminal or civil court uh, action. Hmm. Interesting. So talk about, uh, I mean, would you, do you consider this a form of nonviolent protest? Or, because, I mean, the, the examples you cited of the, the gantries in France that sounds a bit violent. Like, do you consider this one to be violent, one to be nonviolent? Do you consider tax protesting to be a nonviolent form of protest? And where does it cross the line? Uh, tax resistance is a, a good classic example of a form of nonviolent resistance. Uh, however, it has also been used by people uh, in the course of violent resistance campaigns. Uh, in my book, 99 Taxi- Tactics of Successful Tax Resistance Campaigns, I cover both examples. So there are people who have used tax resistance as part of campaigns that were you know, very deliberately nonviolent, for instance, Gandhi's campaigns in India. And there have also been people who have used it in campaigns that happened to be nonviolent, but they weren't really making a special effort to use nonviolent discipline. And they've also been used in campaigns like the French Revolution, which was very violent, and tax, resist- or tax uh, collectors were you know, attacked and murdered and their homes burned down and things like that. So in my book, I cover all of those different cases. Um, but it's, it is a great example of a nonviolent resistance tactic. I read an interesting, an interesting quote in your book about Charles Merrill. And the quote uh, I have in front of me was, it was about uh, his issue, which was same-sex marriage. And the quote here from your book says, for example, Charles Merrill, who resisted his taxes as a way of protesting for the legal recognition of same-sex marriage in the United States, said that he had buried a hoard of $2 million in gold coins in the desert. Quote, my partner doesn't even know where it is at, he said. If the IRS allows me to file a joint federal income tax form like any other married couple, the money is there to pay. Is this something, you know, that's obviously a, a social issue that's heavily in the news. Are, are people using tax protests to advance that agenda that you're aware of? Yeah, I, I know of a few cases in which uh, people have resisted taxes for that reason, and I'm not sure – I haven't done follow-up on it, so I don't know if that's still going on uh, now that same-sex marriage is becoming much more, uh, much more legalized. In the United States, the, uh, some of the, the urgency for that kind of protest I think has died away. Uh, so I ought to do some follow-up and see if those gold coins are still buried out in the desert. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you would hope that uh, you would hope that somebody knew, even though the rhetoric says that he doesn't. But you would hope that you would hope that somebody knew. But then again, maybe he, if he was willing to press the issue that far, maybe he was he was content to stay uh, stay true to what he said. So I'm interested in some of the tactics that you have found to be useful for yourself, and then also some of the things that you have found to be useful for other. Uh, tax protesters, because I think they could be applicable to, they could be applicable to um, people that even who aren't not paying taxes, just people who are choosing to pursue uh, the ideas of frugal living and kind of control their their lifestyle and 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 just even to save money. Uh, would you share some of the things you've learned personally as far as your? Uh, the things you've learned that have helped you, any some of the specific tactics. You write a lot about those on your website. I'm interested if you just share some of those tactics with us. Yeah, sure. I'll go over um, what my, my personal income situation is and what kind of things I do to get below the tax line uh, to start off with. And then that'll let you know kind of what, what amount of income I'm living on over the course of the year. And then I can talk about some of the measures I've used to make it easier to live on that amount of money. Uh, so my income in a typical year uh, will be something around $35,000, $36,000. Of that, I'm going to put about uh, this year, let's see, it's about $3,300 I can put into a health savings account. 
and that's taken as a tax deduction and it's money that I could then spend on my insurance deductible or any sort of health expenses, buying prescription drugs, that sort of thing. I'm going to put about $6,700 into a self-employed pension plan and that's something that's kind of like a 401k for self-employed people. I put about $5,500 into an IRA, a traditional IRA, so that's tax deferred. When I add those up, and then I add, well, here, here I have to <laughs> go off on a little tangent. There's a deduction that self-employed people can take for half of their uh, SECA <laughs> yeah. or self-employment self taxes. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of research into this, and I found that you qualify for that deduction whether or not you actually pay the taxes, which is, <laughs> seems kind of strange to me. But there's some good indications that that's the case. So I take this deduction for half of the taxes that I'm refusing to pay, but that the IRS is still tallying somewhere as being an amount that I owe. So once I start with the $36,000, I take out the $3,300 for the HSA, the $6,700 for the SEP, the $5,500 for the IRA, and about $2,500 for half of the SECA. <laughs> that leaves me about $18,000 in adjusted gross income. And that's more or less what I get to live on over the course of the year to pay for food and rent and the rest. Uh, from that, I take out my standard deduction and personal exemption to get my uh, taxable income, which is $7,800. And that means that I owe about 780 in income tax. And the way I get rid of that is there's something called the self-employed, or it's the, um, ah, shoot, I remember the name of the form. It's the Form 8880 that you fill out uh, to take it. I think it's the Retirement Savings Tax Credit. Okay. And what that means is if your adjusted gross income is low enough, and you've put money into a retirement account like an SEP or uh, an IRA, you get a tax credit for having done that. It's not a refundable tax credit, but it's enough of a tax credit that it eliminates that $780 in tax that I would have owed. So that's what gets me below the tax line. At that point, my, my income tax is zero at that point. So if you're, if you're, but if you're, if you're not paying your self-employment tax and you're choosing to go through the the hassle of, of dealing with the, the IRS trying to collect that money. Why do you go through all the hassle of trying to lower your income and not pay your income tax? Why don't you just allow your income to go up? And when they say, hey, you owe us $10,000 of income tax because you don't have enough deductions, then why not just say, well, forget it. You know, I don't want to pay it. Why not just do the same thing you're doing there? It's a good question. I think there is some tension between the different methods I'm using uh, for this. When I started resisting in 2003, I was only resisting the income tax. And so at, at the time, I thought that that was the tax that was paying for war and the, the FICA or SECA tax was more or less going into Social Security and Medicare. And I didn't feel so bad about paying that. And it was only a few years later as I looked into it a little bit more that I came to realize that that's really not much of a distinction, that the money more or less goes into one big pot and Congress decides how to divvy it up. And there isn't really a, like a Social Security lockbox that the politicians like to talk about. There's not – Really? Are you sure? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but I was, it's so I was really protected. naive about finance when I went into this. I've been learning a lot over the, because I've had to. I've yeah. had to learn a lot over time. And so I've picked up these little things from time to time and become mm -hmm. a little, a little less naive about how the government spends money. That one drives me nuts. They say, well, the Social Security lockbox, there is no Social Security lockbox, period. Never was. It's not intended to be that. It's not. The system is never designed to work that way. It's a. Uh, it's not. There is no trust fund sitting out there with un, unknown trillions of dollars just sitting there, and that's why the, the Social Security faces such a challenge as the number of workers per retiree decreases over the coming decades. That's why the formulas will have to be adjusted under some manner. But that one drives me nuts. I mean, there are technically there are technically funds that are out allocated, but they're empty bank accounts and IOUs. Yeah, yeah, and it's frustrating. A lot of that money has already been spent, and it's been spent in the general fund. So as as much of that money has been going towards the Pentagon and and uh, you know various pork projects and bridges to nowhere and the like as as all of the other taxes. So I realized I didn't really want to be spending that either. But there isn't a tax line for that, so I had to come up with this sort of hybrid method of not paying that tax. Uh, I still like the fact that I just plain don't owe any income tax to begin mm -hmm. with. Sure. So that becomes less of a struggle. Well, it gives you more. If the IRS moral, does. Sorry, it gives you like more of a moral credibility too when you're when you're doing something like this and you're talking on a show like this. I mean, in general, I think you probably face pretty high 
resistance probably would say, well, how on earth are you doing that? But if you're saying I'm simply choosing to lower my income and I'm doing this legally, I think it gives you uh, a stronger, at least for, for, for a public facing person like you're like you've become or are becoming, it gives you a stronger moral foundation. Yeah, I think people are more impressed with somebody who's actually willing to you know change their lifestyle and change their life uh, to to align it with their values as opposed to somebody who's you know doing something rhetorically or doing something uh, a, a little more um, symbolically. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I do have this hybrid method kind of clouds that waters a little bit. Uh, but I haven't found a way around that dilemma. I like the fact that I just plain don't know the income tax to begin with. Uh, I expect that the IRS will continue to try to get the money that I owe them in various ways and, uh, you know, by trying to seize bank accounts or going to the clients that I work for and asking them to, to you know, trying to seize or levy the, uh, the payments that they give to me. They have various tricks in their bag of tricks and they'll keep trying. And for all I know, they'll eventually be successful. And if they're successful in seizing that tax, I can still at least say, well, okay, I've successfully resisted the federal income tax by just simply not owing it in the first place. And so that makes me feel a little bit more reassured about uh, the sustainability of the way that I'm doing things. Well, I guess the way around uh, the, the way what I would say is the way around the dilemma is if you if you want if if you were really concerned with it, the only way that I can think of a way the, around the dilemma is that the self-employment tax is imposed on uh, on profits from your business or on and on cause just like uh, Medicare and Social Security taxes the FICA taxes are imposed on wages that you earn so the only way to avoid it is not to earn wages and so there are there probably are some ways to do it I have to think this through I'm kind of just doing this on the spot but so for example if you did something like uh, you know I build houses and you somehow could figure out how to build houses that you owned and those houses then you know you just simply then rent them out and you have a housing business but you're not taking any wages from your business and you're profiting based upon the capital appreciation then there would that would be there would be no taxes due on no social security tax and no self-employment taxes if you could avoid um, you know if you could avoid those and so theoretically I think theoretically you could do something like that but you really gotta <laughs> you gotta really think it through and figure out you know what skills you would have that would uh, that would even make that happen yeah, if I could live off capital gains, which would be nice, <laughs> then, <laughs> then that, that would be a wonderful way of doing this, but I'm not in that sort of position. Nobody left I, you I know, a trust fund? <laughs> I know some people have done uh, have converted their, their self-employment uh, jobs into S-corps mm-hmm. and managed to get, get out of some of their uh, self-employment tax that way. But that's only a partial solution, and it's, I don't know, it's... It doesn't seem to have enough return on investment for me to to go that route. No, no, it wouldn't. And and the, because the reality is is that the rules on S corporation is that you have to pay a reasonable salary. So you can't just you know the thing you see. I think this is probably the most abused. Uh, I'm not an IRS um, agent, and but I just have read. I think this is probably the most abused line in the tax code is that the rules are very clear. You have to pay yourself a an appropriate salary. And so if you're going to follow the rules and you're going to make sure that you want to have a good good a good um, um, base under you, you need to research what's an appropriate salary for your industry. And if you're making a hundred thousand dollars from profit. Uh, from your from your business or a hundred thousand dollars you know yeah net profit from your business, and the average salary in your business is seventy thousand dollars, it is absolutely one hundred percent against the rules to pay yourself five thousand dollars of wages and ninety five thousand dollars of dividend profit so yeah, people play that game and they play it all the time, but I think it 's probably the most abused um, line in the tax code i 'd have to ask an accountant to see what the IRS actually what do they actually come after but it's not yeah, that, it's I, not I as simple people, as just setting up an S corp is what I was trying to say. Yeah, I hear people talk about it all the time, and so I had to research it and see what it was. And I just I didn't see any percentage in it. It didn't seem like it was going to work. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Like, and I apologize, I cut you off earlier when you were talking about tactics. So you've lowered your income and you went through your income. Then what have you had to learn beyond that? I mean, how on earth do you live in California on eighteen thousand dollars a year? <laughs> it's not very hard. Uh, part, partly, as I said earlier, I don't have kids. You know, I don't have dependents that you know re- that require or, you know me to have a, a steady income that's going to be able to support them through crises and things like that. So I've, I'm fairly self sufficient. I don't have uh, debts that. I I'm worried about I'm not trying to pay off credit cards or student loans or a mortgage or anything like that. Uh, the biggest 
issue for me is I don't have a car, and that is such an expensive thing. Uh, in California or anywhere else, between buying the car itself, gassing it up at today's gas prices, uh, the maintenance on it, your insurance, the the parking tickets and traffic tickets you inevitably get, all of these different things from, from owning a car are just extremely expensive, and to me, not worth it. I'm in good enough shape, and I'm living in a, a bike-friendly enough town that it's easy for me to get around and do everything I need to do on my bicycle. Weather's nice out here in California. So for me, that's a wonderful way of reducing expenses. I'm sure that wouldn't work for everybody, but for me, that's turned out to be a, a really good thing. Uh, by reducing my hours that I work, I've got a lot more time on my hands, which means I can uh, indulge in things like home cooking a lot more. So I've become a good cook. I enjoy cooking. And I have the time to go out to the farmer's markets and shop for produce and come home and prepare something good and look up good recipes and do the dishes afterwards. I don't feel stressed out at the end of my day and feel like, oh, I don't want to do anything but just like order some pizza from somebody and sit down and eat it and watch TV. I've got more energy. So it allows me to do things like that. And by cooking my own food, doing my own shopping and all that, I'm paying much, much less and eating much better than when I was you know, living as an urban playboy and, and working all day and coming home and saying, I'll just go to a restaurant. So it sounds like you're uh, basically living the retired lifestyle without being retired. <laughs> yeah, I'm more or less semi-retired. I work part-time, which gives me a lot of time uh, to, to do other things, to take on other hobbies, to, uh, you know, to, to live the life. I don't want to wait until retirement time to do that. <laughs> do you, and this is one of my things, you know, the, the, the title of my show is called Radical Personal Finance, is that it seems sometimes when you describe what you've just, what you've just described, that seems to be what many people, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say most, but I would just say many people would desire that kind of lifestyle. Now, I think that you get into the world, you got you got to fight on your hands if you talk with Americans about not having a car. But, you know, you have time to read, you have time to write, you have some work that keeps you engaged. Um, what type of work do you do and what were you doing before you started this whole thing? Uh, before I started, I was working in the software field as a technical writer and working uh, as an employee for a software company in the Bay Area. And since then, I've been doing consulting work more or less in the same field. So right now, I'm working for uh, one major client and doing uh, technical writing for software engineers. So teaching software engineers how to use software tools and libraries and things of that sort. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I would imagine that you find enjoy some enjoyment in the work and that it keeps your brain going and you just simply do as much as you need to provide your living expenses and then go from there. And it, it sometimes, you know, I, I don't know if it's a conspiracy or not, but you certainly, I certainly sometimes wonder, why do we spend all this time just on the treadmill, the treadmill, the treadmill? And when you look yeah. at the amount of, when you look at the, when you look at the amount of taxes that get con pulled from it, I sometimes wonder if it's not all a, if it's not all a, uh, plan again, intentional or unintentional. If it doesn't have the effect of just keeping the tax machine going, <laughs> I, I think that's certainly part of it. I know that I work more productively now than I did when I was working, you know, a full eight-hour day, five days a week. Um, when I'm working now, I'm sitting down at the computer and starting things, and I'm fresh, and I'm I've got something to work on, and I start doing it, and I just I power through. And when I start lagging when I start slacking when my brain starts to seize up or when I get to a point where I'm waiting on somebody else to do something that I need to do to go further I just stand up and go do something else and clock out hmm. and so it means that when I am on the job I'm doing I'm doing work 100% and I think probably I'm as productive now as I was when I was working eight hour days and sometimes feeling a little bit uh, sluggish towards the end of the day or after <laughs> lunch and or sitting in meetings a lot and <laughs> not really not really getting a lot out of it so I think this is the way to work. I, I don't know that anybody, everybody could do it, but it's sure working well for me. Yeah, it, it seems, you know, it, it would seem to me that in the world that we have uh, today, just given the, the ability to do work from many places and then even given the ability to have a mobile lifestyle, I mean, you could live wherever and, and you, you, I mean, living in a bikeable city has its advantages, but it would seem like, even if the IRS were after you, certainly could live in a I don't know live in an RV and travel across the country and 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 with some of the advents of technology, I hope that I hope that more and more of of the tax protesters are able to have an effect and and maybe change some of the the ways of the government. Uh, I'd I'd love to see that. Hopefully, it's probably a little easier now than it was in the past. 
Yeah, I think so. And the fact that there are there's a you know a group of people who are doing this that we can draw on. There's there's a group called the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee uh, at Nutric.org. And they've got a lot of information for people who are interested in getting started. There are lots of different ways of doing tax resistance. The way that I'm doing it is just one of them. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the strengths of the movement is that it, anybody can find a method that works well for them, that meets the goals that they want to meet, that uh, takes risks that they find are acceptable, uh, that has effects that they want to have. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I encourage anybody who's interested in trying this, both trying uh, a lifestyle of uh, frugality and I think you had the people from Early Retirement Extreme on your show at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got some wonderful ideas as well about how to reorganize your life so you're, you can step off the treadmill now and again. And also for people who are interested in war tax resistance, yeah, just do some research. Look it up. It's not as hard as it seems and the consequences are not as dire as people can sometimes make them out to be. Yeah. It, 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 you see this, I see this all over our society. And so what, what I see is the constant theme. I see the theme from retirees that I've worked with. They're looking for meaning. They're looking to get off the treadmill. Uh, I did a show, uh, I think it was last week, about the history of retirement. And the thing that I never knew until I, reti- until I researched it is that we're raised in this country with, a, with an idea that well, retirement is the golden ticket and it's your just res- reward and the value of life is to spend time working till 65 and then, and then uh, quitting so that you can enjoy the, go- the, good, the good years and the good time. But if you actually research it, you find that retirement has always been much more of a political tool, especially a political tool of reducing the unemployment numbers by taking a massive number of workers out of the denominator of the equation. And <laughs> that was what it was designed that was what it was designed for. And if you go back and, and study that, and it was only until it was only in the, the late twentieth century or the mid to late twentieth century when the marketing around retirement became effective enough and successful enough to overcome people's dislike of the idea of not working and not being productive and it seems like there's this refrain whether it's some of the things you're sharing from the tax resistance side whether it's the early retirement extreme folks whether it's the the lifestyle design folks like it seems like we all have these common desires for how we want life to look and the solutions tend to be similar in a lot of ways simplicity figuring out what's important to you and not sacrificing the things that are important to you, cutting back on everything else. And then with the advent of technology and the fact of how cheap things have become, then you can live a really great life on, on, on not much money. And when you sacrifice the need, when you get rid of the need to earn a lot of money, then it really opens up the ability, the, the number of things that you can do to support yourself. So I see it everywhere. I see it um, through every, uh, through every aspect of, of life that's, uh, I see it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a lot of innovation going on right now in the way that people are making their living, the way people are living their lives, the way communities are coming together and mutually supporting one another. So they're no longer people are no longer quite so reliant on having that uh, that that job, you know, that position with a company. They're more able to take more chances and to try things on their own and to be entrepreneurial or. You know, to, to take risks with their life in various ways. So I expect that we'll be seeing in the coming years a lot of new and innovative exper- experiments on this line. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I have two questions and then we're done. And so the first question is just on, whenever you get into the world of tax protesting, the thing that I often hear is just about the legality of income taxes. And I know you've written a, some you know, pretty extensively about that. Could you talk for just a moment about the constitutionalist argue about, argument about the idea that you know, income taxes are illegal because they're not authorized and just kind of uh, point out that uh, just talk a, quickly about your opinion about that whole argument and that and that. Um, line of protest? Yeah, so it's a really attractive line of argument that a lot of people have expressed interest in. It's the idea that either the income tax law was not um, enacted correctly, and so it's just not a valid law at all, or that the way it has been interpreted is incorrect, and that if you interpret it correctly, it doesn't apply to most people. Or that even if the law itself was enacted correctly and even if it were to apply to most people, that it's unconstitutional in some way. And so it's not a valid law for that reason. And um, it's a perpetually attractive argument and people love it and will devote a lot of time and attention to it. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of merit in it as a legal argument. The courts don't seem to have any uh, truck for it at all. Uh, And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that way. 
Um, I wouldn't certainly recommend that anybody uh, arrange their tax resistance using these arguments. I don't think it's likely to work in the long run. Uh, and I think you're probably kind of fooling yourself in the short run. That if you're going to do tax resistance, you should probably do it with, uh, with your eyes open as to what the courts uh, really believe the law is and what law they will apply. Um, that said, a lot of people who have been using this have caused a lot of trouble for the government and a lot of trouble for the IRS. And so I kind of smile <laughs> when I read about yeah. it. I don't think it, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for the arguments, but I have a little, a little bit of sympathy for the people who are practicing it. Certainly, certainly. So the last question is this. Do you, do you actually expect like, to make a difference? Or are you, like, do you actually expect to make a difference? Or are you kind of just falling on your sword to make a statement and follow your ethics? Well, here's, here's the way I look at it. Is I think that I was making a difference all along. You know, that every year that I was earning my salary and paying you know, 25% of it or whatever to the federal government, I was making that much difference. I could count the difference I was making in dollar bills. And I didn't like that difference that I was making in the world. And so by withholding that, I feel like I am also making that much of a difference. Now, I'm, I'm just one person in a nation of millions. And so I have to be humble about just how much of an effect my life is going to have on the world around me. But I also have to realize that I do have an effect. The government wouldn't be asking all of us for money if it wasn't important to it to have that money. It means something. It has a real-world effect. It's practical. And so by doing what I'm doing, I don't think I'm going to, you know, convince Washington to change its policies because, you know, because some guy out in California isn't paying his taxes. But I do know what I am doing, what I am participating in, what I'm giving my practical material to support to. And I, you know, to me, that is making a difference. Yeah. Well, I respect you for following your conscience and doing it. Um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not ready to join you. I guess the, I would, I, if I, I would, I would consider the, I guess, and it probably comes in stages, you know, just like you started with the idea of just simply reducing your income and continuing to pay your self-employment taxes. That's a little bit easier to swallow for me than, than, than not paying the taxes. And I, I would have to do some thinking, you know, thinking about it and the, 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 the hang up for, for guys like me from a Christian perspective is always that, you know, pay your taxes, uh, scripture in the Bible. And that always, and, and I respect that. Uh, I, I'll have to research the Quaker perspective because it seems like they've got a long history of, of believing that very seriously, but I've never researched it much, but it's always kind of a challenge, but I respect you for, I respect you for doing it. And I hope that, uh, today's show can be of some help to some people and, and at least make us think each day. Uh, I'd like to. I would like to plug in. Compl- I would like to plug your book for you and comp- compliment you on it. And David's book, I will link to it in the show notes, is entitled "99 Tactics of Successful Tax Resistance Campaigns." And you can buy the Kindle version, or he has a paperback on Amazon. And what I especially liked about it is it seems very thorough. And it's usually when I have run across the war tax resistance or tax resistance arguments, it seems like the constitutionalist arguments dominate. And when I read them, I just think, mm, you know, I respect the person's beliefs and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'd like to agree with them, but I just can't, ah, I just can't make this work. But when you go through some of the historical examples, the ones you've done, uh, I feel like that's, and you have lots of them in the book, that, that really helps you to think about it where you're not talking about the modern day 2014 U.S. American government, you're talking about the 1914 British government or whatever year it was. And it's a lot easier to think through the, the, the morals of it in that situation. So I'd recommend people, if they're interested in this, get your book. I really enjoyed it. And I, I got, I'll write an, I'll write a, excuse me, I will write a review for you on Amazon saying so. Uh, I'd like to see you get some more reviews on your book. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on your show. Anything else you want to say before we go? I think that well, you know, I also have a blog that I, I use to yes. uh, discuss tax resistance information. And if people are interested in checking that out, it's got a good subject matter index. You can find out about a lot of the things I've been talking about today. Uh, is it sniggle.net/tpl? So s n i g g l e dot net slash tpl. It's called the Picket Line. I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you. That's our interview for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I certainly find some of the content that David and I discussed very challenging and very interesting. Lots to think about. You know, it's not often that you roll over into the moral ground where you're kind of considering the whole fabric of society and government systems and taxes and all those things. Uh, I find it extremely challenging to think about, but I certainly think it's a worthy conversation. Uh, I have to fight hard to keep from feeling like I'm out in territory where I shouldn't be. But then again, that just shows you how deep a hold all this stuff has on us. So I wish David well, and I again encourage you to read his book. It is well worth reading, and I think that we can all learn something from it, especially the history is fascinating. I never had any idea about any of this history until I read his book. So I hope that you'll check it out, and I hope that you'll support David and what he's doing. And I hope that you'll join us tomorrow for another episode of the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Clearly... Today is an excellent day to have a disclaimer. I am not giving personal financial advice. You shouldn't do what you're going to do based upon some guy that you hear on the internet. Financial decisions are very personal. You have to look at your state and your jurisdiction. So please do your own research and talk to a professional.